0: You're listening to the Faith Roots audio podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. Simply search Faith Roots on YouTube and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Today we're gonna get into the idea that when you become righteous by faith, that you complete your righteousness, the circle of righteousness, with good works. And we're just going to go ahead and jump right in, take a look at the baptism of Jesus to show you this picture. Matthew 3, verses 13, 14, and 15, New King James. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. "...but Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then John allowed him. Now Jesus was already righteous before he came to John the Baptist, but he still came to participate in John's baptism. Now why would he do that? Well, the reason is He wanted to provide a model for all of the people of Israel to see. And what He is showing them is that righteous people are baptized, not sinners. If you are a sinner when you go into the water, you may be dry when you start out, you'll only be wet when you come out. Because baptism is not for sinners, baptism is for righteous people. Jesus was righteous when He was baptized, that's the model. So your righteousness doesn't come because of your baptism. Your righteousness is demonstrated through your baptism, but it's not something that comes through your baptism. So there's something here that is really key to all of this. Jesus said, let this happen, John, so that we can fulfill righteousness. Righteousness is not fulfilled if we do not show some corresponding works. In other words, if someone comes to Christ and says, I've been born again, they've expressed faith in Jesus, but they go right back out into the world and they continue to live wickedly, they're not fulfilling righteousness. Now, it isn't that they have to do something to earn their salvation, because all salvation is a gift It is something that is given to you on the basis of faith. That's very clear from the Scriptures. But once you receive it, there should be some corresponding action. You are doing things that show the inward change that took place in you. And it's not something that's forced. It's supposed to be a natural thing that happens in you. We should have these good works naturally. Now Christ was fulfilling this so he could show us what I would call the backside of righteousness. In other words, righteousness begins with our faith, but the backside of it to complete the circle. And it's easy to remember some of these things if you think of God's works as a full circle. The first half is our believing on Christ as our substitute. He died for us, we receive what He bought for us. But now that we've done that, the back half of righteousness is the good works that demonstrate the change. He was baptized to provide that model. The actions of believing bring about salvation without our having done any good works. In other words, you're saved before you ever do any good works. But righteousness naturally produces good works, but it isn't brought about by them. Good works can't save you. You do good works because you are saved. The Scripture shows us that good works are followers, not leaders. Now listen to Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, New King James Version. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes, that's the first thing he does, he believes, and is baptized, that's the second thing that he does, will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And notice it doesn't say, he who does not believe will be condemned. He who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. He doesn't say that. Because not believing is enough to do you in. So it is a combination. The good works of righteousness follow the change of righteousness, the gift of righteousness that you receive in your heart. Uh, we said that good works are followers, not leaders. Let's take a look at where the Scripture just states it plainly. Revelation fourteen thirteen. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and listen to this, and their works follow them. So that's really what our good works are. They're followers. They follow the faith that we have in Christ. You cannot do anything to earn it. Righteousness is your gift. But this idea that we don't have any responsibility to good works after, it doesn't matter, that's a mistaken idea. We're not saved by those works. We don't live under condemnation because of that, but we have a responsibility to demonstrate those good works because there was a change that took place in us. Now, the definition of righteousness includes both the unearned gift, and the works that follow it. Now, righteousness, as defined by W.E. Vine in his amazing dictionary of expository, or his uh, uh, W. E. Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, in the Greek says that dikaiosune, which is righteousness in English, is translated as right-wiseness or the character or quality of being right or just, whatever is right or just in itself. Now all of those things are invisible. So the first work of righteousness is an invisible work in your heart. Remember Jesus taught that when we're born in the Spirit, we're like the wind. You can't see the wind, can't see where it's coming from, but you see the effect of the wind. So righteousness is not something that you see, but we should see the effect of righteousness. Now here are the four visible works of righteousness according to Vine. Whatever has been appointed by God to be acknowledged and obeyed by man, the sum total of the requirements of God, spiritual duties such as almsgiving, prayer, fasting, those are called righteousness in the New Testament, and then right actions, and so what I want you to see from this is that, that righteousness is like a circle. first half of the circle is the righteousness that you receive by faith when you believe on Christ, but righteousness is fulfilled. In other words, the circle is closed when you do good works. Jesus demonstrates it beautifully at His baptism. When He is righteous before He ever goes down in the water... But then he goes ahead and follows John the Baptist's teaching and does the baptism to demonstrate a righteous work that follows a righteous heart. And that's what righteousness is designed to be. It's to be a full, completed circle. The first part is us receiving the gift of righteousness, the right standing of God, and with God, right wiseness. But now that we have that, we demonstrate outwardly these good works, these things that naturally spring from a righteous heart. Um, one of the things that so helped me years ago it was I was taught about how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And someone pointed me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and verse 1, where it says, "...follow after charity." and desire spiritual gifts rather that you may prophesy but the first part of the verse is really what got me follow after charity or follow after love and in this message that i heard it forever changed my life it said you want to hear the voice of the spirit he speaks in love follow love and so when you go in your daily life and the love of God moves you and you feel love toward a certain person, there would be times that I would be at church and I would see maybe a young couple that you could tell they, were, they were, didn't have a lot of money. You could just tell by the way they dressed and they just had a whipped look about them. And the love of God would rise up in me for them and I would feel like, man, I need to help them. And so I I started going to church with a little extra money in my wallet. So in case the Lord would use me to encourage someone like that, I would have something to give them. And so I I would maybe give them a couple of $20 bills and tell them, have a date night. You could tell It, it meant everything in the world to them, that they had been under such intense financial pressure that they hadn't been out for dinner in a long, long time. And so just me giving them two $20 bills at the time was enough to, to totally uh, break something that had been oppressing them. It was a sign from God that He had not forgotten them, that He cared about them. And so I learned the importance of following after love. Be sensitive to that love of God. This is not a work that I'm doing to earn salvation. I'm not doing this because I'm not right with God and I'm hoping to become right with God with what I'm doing. This is just a natural work that fulfills my righteousness. It's the work that follows the gift of righteousness that I already received. And so when you think of righteousness in those two ways, and by the way, that's how Vine defines it, there are certain things about righteousness that are totally and completely invisible, But then there are other things about righteousness that are very, very visible. And so that's how it flows. The first step though, is that we receive the gift of righteousness in order that we might have the natural works of righteousness that follow. And can I tell you, it doesn't matter who you are, every one of us is in a position to naturally do those works. Now let let me tell you a little story here that I I think is uh, instructive to us at this point. I heard a a tragic story, really, about a young lady who had the habit of picking up hitchhikers, and she believed that she could win just anybody to Christ, and her family begged her not to do this. And uh, they were all believers, but she was insistent, this is what God wants me to do. And she was a beautiful young lady, but she would see people on the side of the road. She'd stop, pick them up, witness to them. One day she picked up the wrong guy, and he killed her. And she cut her life short. And so she was convinced that putting herself in harm's way was the way that God wanted her to show her faith. And i got to tell you something. You don't ever put yourself in harm's way on purpose. In the New Testament, when the people were persecuted... It, it wasn't because they put themselves in harm's way on purpose. That would be really tempting God. It's kind of what Satan was doing with Jesus when he tried to get him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Put yourself in harm's way and, and God is obligated to deliver you. And sometimes we find out tragically that, that, that he doesn't. It would have been better had the young lady had a long and prosperous life and borne a lot of fruit. Uh, God could have used her in many, many ways, but she put herself in a place of vulnerability. I believe that the works of righteousness that we do should be, number one, in keeping with our gifts and our personalities. And then number two, they should be things that bear fruit over the long haul. In other words, God's not going to lead me to do something that's going to get me killed right away and keep me from being able to continue. God's going to use me and following after love with people for a good long while. So learn how to be sensitive to that love. Follow after love. Let the love of God lead you. And uh, there are ways to be practical in all of this. My good friend Tommy Barnett, who launched the Dream Center in Los Angeles years ago, and I've been a part of that ministry from uh, the very beginning. Uh, I was with him when I was speaking there. He picked me up at the hotel, and we're driving to the Dream Center, and we stopped at a traffic light. And uh, a street guy comes up to us and starts beating on the window and wants a little help. And Pastor Tommy handled this in the most beautiful way. He's very kind. But he rolled down his window and he handed the guy a card. And this is what he said. He said, you call the number on this card. They will come pick you up. They'll be here in a few minutes. They will take you to the Dream Center. You'll have a warm place to sleep tonight, a hot meal And they had a system for blessing and helping people who were on the streets. Well, this guy didn't want that. And Pastor Tommy told me before he ever rolled the window down, he said, watch this, the guy's going to reject it. And uh, sure enough, the guy did. He said, I've given him this card many, many, many times, but he keeps knocking on the window, and what he wants is money. But if he gets money, he's going to go out and use it for drugs, and it's not going to do him or us any good. And so he said, we've got a system that is set up To bless him, all he's got to do is call. And if he calls, we'll come get him, we'll help him. You see, that's what a work of righteousness is. It's not something foolish. Uh, where we see people giving huge amounts of money to drug users and people, they don't even know standing on the side of the road. They don't know what they're giving to. And, And the scripture tells us to be wise. It doesn't tell us just to be generous. It tells us to be wise. And so works of righteousness are not foolish works. They're brilliant works because they feed the whole process of righteousness. In other words, they don't just take from the giver and then waste what's given, but yet they continue the circle. That's the way righteousness works. So we've got a lot more to say about this, so be sure you listen to the next. Welcome back. We're continuing our talk about the works of righteousness. Genuine faith always produces a corresponding action, it produces a work of faith. And these are not dead works that are designed to earn salvation because you can't earn your salvation with your works. But God did intend for faith and righteousness to produce living works. Now let me read to you from the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14. And what James is doing here, he's writing because some of the people, no doubt, had taken some of the things the Apostle Paul had said because Paul was correcting a wrong The emphasis was totally on works around a lot of the people Paul was talking to. So some of the people jumped over and said, okay, all we need is faith alone. We don't need any works. Works don't count. Faith alone is all we need. So James is coming back to give balance to the wrong idea. Uh, What does it profit, James 2.14 says, My brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith, by my works. In other words, James is saying, when you have faith, you're going to have corresponding actions. Uh, Jesus sets this up in the Gospel of John chapter 3, and he does it in such a beautiful, beautiful way uh, when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, who's a teacher, doesn't get it And Jesus says to him, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he explains it. He said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now this is what Jesus is saying. He is saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is like the work of the wind. The wind itself is invisible. You can't see it, but you can see the effects of the wind. And that's a beautiful picture of the righteousness of faith. You cannot see the invisible nature of righteousness or faith, but you can see the effects of them. And so what Christ was saying is if you have this invisible work done in your heart, it will produce visible results in the outward world. That's what James was talking about. But the order has to be correct. In other words, the righteousness of faith is established first. Now because you are righteous, you have corresponding works, and these works are profitable. Uh, James says that here. He says, um, "If if you say to someone, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give the people the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, the righteous works profit. They bless people. There's something good about it. It turns people to faith in Christ." You know, I think that all of our outreach should be considered that way. You ask yourself this question, does this profit? Are we closing the loop? In other words, a lot of uh, years ago I heard about a church that had this amazing street outreach in a, in a large American city, and they prayed with, I don't know, 10, 15,000 people in a two- or three-year period to receive Christ. Not one of those people, not one of them, came to church service and ever joined the church or became connected to the believers. That is not a profitable work. Now, I'm not saying that no one was ever born again. But you see, when a work of righteousness is truly done the loop is closed. In other words, we're not just reaping wheat. Farmer doesn't go in the field and gather his wheat and just leave it in the field. He picks up the wheat, carries it in the barn so that it can be profitable. And that's what the righteous works do. The righteous works bless everybody involved. They bless the person who receives them, but they also bless the person who does them. That's what the righteous works do. They are full circle works. They complete the circle. Now, you see this visible and invisible work of righteousness with Noah. Here is Genesis 6-8, New King James Version. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Could you have seen that? Had you been there when it happened? Could you have seen it? The answer is no. You couldn't have seen it. It was an invisible work uh, the Bible says in Hebrews 11:7, New King James Version, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. In other words, these visitations from God concerned things that could not be seen. So the first thing that happened in Noah's life was he had encounters with God that were really invisible, couldn't see him. But then, he had visible works to follow the invisible encounters. Look at this. We continue on with Hebrews eleven seven, 7. But Noah was moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So, invisible faith, invisible righteousness are completed by visible works that correspond to faith. And this is an emphasis that is laid out all through the Scriptures. We are not saved by the outward works. We are saved by this inward faith. We have an inward change, and as a result, we naturally produce these desires to work that bring about good for people. Noah's work brought about the salvation of the human race. I mean, had he not built the ark, uh, the world would have been lost. It it changed everything when he built the ark. He had works of faith, and these works of faith, you think about it, uh, were energized by this word from God. It took Noah, uh, from what we can see in Scripture, he was about uh, uh, 500 years old when his three sons were born, And about the time those sons were born, God spoke to him, and the flood came in the 600th year of his life. And so he worked on that ark for about 100 years. And some people say that it's 120. uh, When God says, My spirit will not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet shall his days be 120 years. That's talking about Adam. That's not talking about uh, uh, Noah's time on the ark. So the point that I want to bring out is this, is that Noah was able to work for 100 years, based upon this invisible encounter he had with God. There was an energy to it. And that's the thing that is so important to see, that our righteous connection to God is a dynamo. It is an energy. This is what I tell people. Labor out of your overflow, not because of have to. Years ago, a wonderful man of God, Dr. Roy Hicks, taught me something about how I ministered to people. And he said, Willie, preach out of your overflow. And my question is, okay, explain that. What do you mean by that? He said, learn to feed on things in Scripture that really bless you, that challenge you, that lift you up. He said, that's what you in turn give to the people. In other words, if we're not careful, we're doing all of our ministry only on the basis of need. And he said, it's important that what you're feeding others is something that blessed you first feed out of your overflow. Do you see how the works of righteousness then come? They come not because you have to do them. I've got to go do this. You do this because you want to, because you are energized to. And there are times when we run out of gas and we get a little tired. That's why your next step needs to be spend some time with the Lord. And as you give time to the Lord and as you allow the Lord to refresh you and you minister out of this refreshing, that's attractive to people. When you are pushed into doing things because of duty or you feel like you have to do it, there almost is a little bit of resentment toward that. People sense that. They pick that up. But when you're ministering out of that overflow and you're doing the works out of that overflow, It's refreshing not only to other people, but also to you. So that's how we work. Righteous works are not forced. They spring naturally out of a refreshed and filled human spirit. We'll pick up here later. Well, we're gonna get into the crux of the matter. In fact, this very term, the righteousness of faith comes from a passage that we're gonna get into and explain in uh, detail uh, from the book of Romans chapter 10. And I wanna forewarn you, this is gonna be a little meatier and uh, so you're gonna have to really listen. Uh, It's something I really have to listen to uh, and think on to get it uh, straight. You and I, as well as all humankind, we all have to do it. We have to resist the pull to exalt the things that are seen over the things that are unseen. I mean, we do this in everyday faith, everyday walking with God. If we're not careful, we take more um, peace and comfort in uh, the changing of circumstances than we do in the promise of God. And when you really develop a strong faith, your confidence and your peace is in the promise of God, not so much in the circumstances. You know the circumstances are going to change. You don't see Jesus uh, just going crazy whenever a circumstance changed. He was so rooted in the Word. He believed the Word and the promises of the Word before they ever happened And so when they did happen, he wasn't surprised. It's like somebody shouting every time they flip the light switch and the lights come on. Oh, wow, look at this. That says you weren't expecting it. So we have to resist that pull. And it's a pull that happens all the time with humans. And here it is uh, in the book of Matthew chapter 6. And this is the extreme. This is where it goes. Uh, This is uh, the work of the Pharisees, and Jesus is talking about it. And he says in Matthew 6, beginning of verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men. Now I'm reading uh, New King James. I'm going to go ahead and put it back to the King James in this one place. Take heed that you do not do your alms before men. Alms are different than a regular offering. I'll explain that in a minute. To be seen by them. Now look at that. Uh, We're not to do what we do before men in order to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Now, why would that be? Because you're totally ignoring Him. You don't care about what He thinks. You're making a very clear statement that you're doing everything that you do simply to get the approval of men. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets." that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do an alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your almsgiving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. And so Christ is here emphasizing that the work of God places more emphasis on the invisible than on the visible. In other words, you may do the good deed, but be invisible in it. Now why would this be? It would be to protect and preserve the dignity of the people who receive. Now we were never as, as a kid in a position to receive alms giving from anyone, but I knew of certain pastors' kids who grew up very poor, the church didn't pay a lot, and uh, they were constantly receiving hand-me-downs from people in the church. And these poor kids had to wear those clothes into the church services where other kids would see them. And very often, uh, the kids who actually gave the church clothes, who outgrew them, uh, they commented on that. And the the pastor's kids grew up with these hand-me-downs. There was no dignity in this giving. It didn't have any consideration at all for the people who received the alms. And Jesus is saying that. Don't blow trumpets in the street when you are about to give money or help or something to someone in need because you're robbing them of their dignity. When you give something like that, uh, you do it in private. That's almsgiving. Now, when there is a corporate cause, when the church is doing something together as a whole, where you have a target and all of you are contributing toward it, there's nothing wrong with being public about that. With a public challenge or public participation or people stand up and volunteer and say, I'll help, I'll take this on, I'll do that." Uh, that. There's nothing wrong with that. And so there's nothing wrong with an offering being taken in public. However, we don't think it's right for an individual to stand up. I'm giving so much this week in my tithes. That's unnecessary. But when we have a corporate goal and we talk about what we're doing corporately, where the whole church is clued in to what they all did together, uh, that's a good thing. Here's another thing to watch for. It happens all the time. Churches will have uh, big days where they go out and work in the community and all these different projects, Love Day, Serve Day, and I think it's a wonderful thing. My thought on this is don't call the media. If the media finds out about it and comes and runs a story on what you do, that's great. But when you go to the media and you ask them to come look at what you're doing, you're violating this principle. You're not doing it as unto the Lord. You're doing it to be seen of men. Now, there will be times that you will do it unto the Lord, and the media will pick up on it. Years ago, we played at Lincoln Christian School uh, in an inner-city football team. We knew we were going to clobber them. They only had 15, 18 kids out for football. Uh, And these are inner-city kids who never got a chance to play in front of a big crowd. They may have had six, seven people show up in the stands at their games. So our associate pastor and myself got together... And we said, let's bless the daylights out of these kids. Let's get all of our church people who don't have an affiliation to our school to come and support these kids. And so we did and we didn't charge them admission for the football game. And they became the fans for this group of kids that came to our school. Our own high school students made posters for every single football player. They made a big banner for those kids to run out onto the field through, and those kids were on cloud nine when they came to our stadium and saw it was packed on their side. There were people standing on the fence. Now, we had nothing to do with this, but the news media, all of the major tech- television stations, and the newspaper caught wind of what we were doing. They reported on it. There was an editorial in the Sunday paper that gave great praise to our school and our church, but we didn't ask for any of that. That just happened. God was glorified. So there will be times when the media will give glory to God on your account but you don't seek that. You don't go asking for that. And sometimes another person will see that happen and you think, ah, that's the key to growth. It isn't. You let God bring about the growth. You don't need the media to step in. All right. Now here's where it goes. It goes even into prayer. And this is what Jesus warned about in Matthew 6, 5. "'And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men.'" I assuredly say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, you go into your room when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Once again, Jesus points to the invisible being the root or the source of the invisible answer and manifestation that comes. This principle is presented to us all through the New Testament. Let me give you another example. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.15, Meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly to them. He's telling Timothy, you do this in private. Then he says that your profiting may appear to all. What you do in private, he is saying, is going to show up so everybody can see it. Uh, Then he says it again in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. That is something that happens in private. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Meaning, he said, when you publicly get up to speak, people will see the hand of God on you. But it comes from what you did in private. The invisible gives great credit to the visible. Now, I see this in, in so many areas of life. Uh, we have a football team. We mentioned that a while ago. Uh, some football teams think that their yelling before a game is going to be enough to put them over the top. You can tell they have great faith in that because they will do everything in their power to intimidate us through their yelling. And uh, and apparently coaches believe in that because they really stimulate that. And we'll have teams that actually chat uh, chat uh, sometimes curse words and on our field trying to intimidate us. And uh, we wind up beating the daylights out of them. And our kids never win the yelling battle before the game. We don't even try to. And the reason is we know it is the invisible that brings about the visible victory. It's what we did in the off-season, what we did in the summer. It's all of that weightlifting and that running and that extra stuff that we do when nobody is around. That's what makes a successful fall football season. And a lot of schools don't get that. I I have seen times where we would be down at the half, and uh, we would go into the locker room, and our coaches would get together, and they would sit down with the team, And they would talk about what we were seeing up in the booth and what was going on. And we would make adjustments at halftime to change the way we were blocking a certain player, to change a defense we were running. And we would come out in the second half, and the team that was ahead made no adjustments because they were ahead. We'd come out in the second half and beat the daylights out of them. I would hear the reporters come to the head coach and ask, I would like to have heard that halftime speech, what did you say? And uh, the coach typically would say, really, nothing. We just made adjustments. And that's what a lot of people don't get. It is the unseen that changes the scene, and we've got to remember that. Now, from the very outset of our relationship with God, from the very first moments of our salvation— We follow these principles. This is what brings us to faith in Christ. It's what gives salvation to us. It's how you get it. Christ worked it and bought it for us, but then we need to understand how we get it. So I'm going to read a number of passages here, Romans 10, 1, 2, and 3, and this is from 26 translations. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I know from experience what a passion for God they have, but they are not guided by true insight. Now, it took someone like the Apostle Paul to say this. An outsider could never have said this, but he was a Jew, and he was a Jew's Jew, and he was not only that, he was a Pharisee, but not only that, he's called a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was the strictest of them all. And so he knew where he was coming from when he said this, and he said it with confidence. He said, "...for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God..." And in their eagerness to set up a righteousness of their own, they refused to accept with submission the righteousness of God. And sometimes we get down on the Jews for doing that, not realizing that even in the Christian church, we have certain traditions that demonstrate the same idea. You know, the scripture says in Mark 16, we'll lay hands on the sick and the sick recover. And it's not enough for some preachers just to lay hands on the sick. We have to see them fall under the power in order to have faith that anything happens. And I know some guys, you can tell it by watching, if you do not fall when they lay hands on you, they will stay on your head and push till you go over. And that's the truth, and you see it all the time. And so there's a tremendous emphasis put on that which is visible. Jesus didn't say you lay hands on the sick and if they fall they're going to be healed. You know that not one person fell under the power of God when Jesus laid hands on them and prayed for them. Now there were people who fell under the power, the Roman soldiers at the tomb, the mob that came to crucify Jesus, but nobody receiving healing ever fell under the power. But that's a thing that we've developed. It's one of those things where we put more faith in the visible than we do in the visible. So the Bible says we lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That's the visible thing that comes from the invisible thing that we did. In other words, the healing transfer was invisible. Only a man like Paul could have written these words. Now, this is the reason then that he was chosen to preach Christ in the way that he did. All right, we go on, Romans 10, 4 and 5. For Christ has put an end to the law... Another translation says he fulfilled the law. He completed it as a way to right standing for everyone who puts his trust in him. The idea is not that Jesus hated the law and wanted to do away with it. The law had served its purpose. It had pointed to him. It was fulfilled in what he did. That's why he came to put the end to it. All right. For Moses writes concerning the law, uh, lawway to right standing with God, the man who does this shall gain life by it. In other words, if you want to gain life by the law, you've got to keep every single bit of it. Now, Paul emphasizes that that can't be done in Galatians chapter 3. Let me read you two verses, 10 and 11. Those who take their stand on observance of the law are all under a curse. For the scripture says, curse be anyone who does not stand by everything that is written in the book of the law and obey it. It's evident that no one is ever justified before God in terms of law because we read, the just shall live by faith. In other words, that passage uttered by Habakkuk in 2.4 tells us that If we are justified by faith and we live by faith, it's not the law that made us right with God. Faith is the invisible quality by which we come to salvation and are secured in salvation. It is not delivered on the basis of visible outward works. Those have a place after we receive salvation, but they're not what bring it. The works of men then had no part in securing our salvation. Back to Romans chapter 10, verses 6, 7, and 8. 26 translations. But the faith way to right standing speaks in this way. Do not say who will scale heaven for us as if we had to bring Christ down to earth or who will go down to the depths below as if we had to bring Christ back from the dead. Now here's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying if it takes works to deliver salvation, then who did the work to bring the Messiah down to earth in the first place? And who went down into the heart of the earth to bring him back from the dead? In other words, Paul said, God was completely capable of bringing about the plan of salvation himself without the participation of any man. And even the 12 disciples didn't believe there was gonna be a resurrection because none of them came to the tomb when Jesus was raised, they had all given up. God wanted this plan of salvation to be a thing that was completely his and his alone. No work of man brought it about. Now, salvation then and right standing come from faith. Now he says this, no, what does it say? The righteousness of faith, what does it say? It says the word is already within easy reach of each of us, in other words, This is not a hard work we have to do. In fact, it is as near as our own hearts and mouths, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Then he gets in to the two verses that we use all the time to lead people to Christ. For with your lips you acknowledge the truth of the message that Jesus is Lord in your heart. And if you believe that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved." For in their hearts, people exercise the faith that leads to right standing, and with their lips, they make the acknowledgement, which means salvation. Now pay attention to this. If you as a believer are living under condemnation, and you are condemned because you don't feel like all of your works measure up, you are in effect telling yourself that you are saved, saved, by the works that you do. Now you should have good works, but here's the thing. You don't do them because you focus on them to obtain a feeling. You do them as a natural result of recognizing that you're already right with God. God gave the law to Moses then to serve as a picture of everything that Christ would do. And in the law of Moses, no doubt, The greatest display of moral law and moral works by men ever was witnessed on the earth. The law was an amazing thing, but it still wasn't enough. And it's God's way of saying, I gave you the highest law that the world has ever seen. And even then, it wasn't enough to bring about your salvation. I used it to point to the real Savior, Jesus Christ, and in His suffering, He bought righteousness for all mankind. So the righteousness of faith is a complete reliance on what Jesus Christ did for us. Anything other than that is us going back to a reliance on the visible, and we always go to the invisible so that we can produce the visible fruit. I hope you've enjoyed this message, and I hope you will meditate this, particularly that passage in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. I I think that's tremendous. And I would read it in a number of translations until it really sinks into your heart. Well, that's all the time I have for this series, but I want to thank you for joining me in this. See you later. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people, so take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you for listening.